You know, the we were talking about like the breakup of the US and how it would feel like states just become their own, you know, countries as as is the main purpose of the US. Um but I'm I mean the only like thing I can think as far as climate is going to go is that there's going to be but it's not even possible. I was thinking like there's got to be some external body or group of governments or whatever that are willing to like take over the u.s so that because the the u.s is driving like a huge policy decision that affects the entire world right like that's the thing with climate change and global warming it's right well like not if if nato could somehow get together and be like the u.s has to demilitarize <laughs> Right, yeah. Yeah, that's That's the only thing, but yeah, the US has um built itself up so it's been working out like for so long that nobody's going to tell them what to do. Well, true. And then the the uh the the strength of the American military is what is uh, supposedly holds these international organizations like the UN and NATO together. <laughs> so, so right. if all of a sudden you don't have like the uh, large backing force of the United States military, which is like one of the number one global polluters, um, like how do you hold how do you, how do you hold NATO together? Really, <laughs> I mean, within the U.S., nobody even can fight back against the the military. Like, isn't the the island of Hawaii, like one fifth of their water was poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. By the Navy. And what is, they're not getting compensated. They're not getting fresh water. It's like permanently destroyed because mm -hmm. the Navy was just putting their, what, like oil and. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oil and uh, uh, fuel, spent fuel from different yeah. ships and planes. <clears throat> so it's. It's one of those things where, um, again, you know, if you were strong on the side of saying, no, abolish is too strong of a word, <laughs> you're going to lose <laughs> voters. Well, <laughs> your guy won and look where we are. Come on, man. Fund them. <laughs> fund the police. We need to fund them. Come on, man. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and COVID is now like, like, you know, I understand kids, uh, what, as young as six months can get the vaccine now. Yep. But I don't know, is there like a run on pharmacies? Uh, like, I mean, I know like in in my family, like they went immediately and a couple of my friends, but I don't think there's like a line of uh, kids. And I don't think that, uh, at least as far as I know right now, um, you know, like school districts require vaccines to go to school you know you know measles mom's right. rubella all that stuff but right now there's no requirement for any kid to get a covid vaccine in order to be enrolled this fall now that they can get them as young as six months so i don't know i, I don't know what the policy is going to be for that i i do i've read a couple of articles that are talking about how they're working on a developing a new vaccine that is not based on the original strain of the virus that the current vaccines are 
modeled after. It's mm-hmm. based on like the latest variants and so to be able to counteract future variants. So the part of the reason why they weren't telling everyone to go get a another booster shot when that became available, except for the people who were, you know, over 65 and immunocompromised was because they didn't want to make it such that everyone got their booster and then that booster was just waning as the fall started to come around and we would have more potential spread because of just higher uh, everyone else having like cold and flu symptoms and everything else that goes along with the seasonal aspect of it. So they were, they're planning on releasing another vaccine in the fall that they want everyone to get that will protect them better than the booster versions of the current vaccine. And so I don't know if that there's some sort of timing thing going on and just everybody's not coordinated with the messaging on it, but I don't know. It seems like everybody punted a long time ago. I know. It's just so annoying that the, I'll get a vac, another one in the fall. Like, just let me get one now. Like the way that they've spaced it out so much that they, they're like, well, we know that the boosters are going to lose their, um, efficacy or effectiveness, I suppose. Um, after four to six months, mm-hmm. but even though we know this is the time when everyone got a shot and this is the time when it's going to start, you know, where COVID can spread between three times vax people, um, we're just not gonna get a vaccine out there because I don't know, it's such a weird policy decision to say we'd rather just people get sick and spread it so that that's their immunity instead of giving them a shot that like our friends are already making money off of (laughs) it's such a weird but that's like the like the democratic democrat playbook for like abortion is they're just hoping enough people die from having pregnancies that they didn't want or bad abortion jobs or get thrown in prison that that what they win elections more like yeah <laughs> you're, the, it'll you're be it'll be a bad enough look that they'll finally get that super majority they've been angling for yeah they already had they had that before and what did they do <laughs> they like made sure that all of the bankers made all of their money back yeah yeah we we had to get we had to make sure we bailed out the auto industry well, how's that going? Num- number one most important thing, perpetuate perpetuate more downfall of climate. <laughs> we could just oh, ima- imagine the different world where like in 2007 and 2008, the uh, the entire American automobile manufacturing just went under. And we just were like, well, we'll just import cars and we'll just come up with some other things. We're not going to bail this, these guys out. <laughs> just imagine imagine what the future looked like would would have looked like uh 15 years after that instance if we just had given up on ford and chevy yeah that that would be weird <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean at least that extra everyone will be money. driving a tesla that's what i'm saying <laughs> can go towards cops Make sure the cops have their vehicles. Yeah, but the cops would all be driving around like Toyota Corollas and stuff. Man, if they were in a smart car. Hyundai Elantra cop car. (laughs) 
What are those like hydrogen powered ones? Those are the Honda ones, right? Honda is all about the trying to do the hydrogen fuel cells while everyone else is doing uh, batteries. Yeah. I mean, God love them. Anyways. Well, now that we've talked about all the big issues, let's talk about <laughs> some small issues, Eric. Yay. <laughs> What's never ending to find a beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the It's it is funny though because like this guy um, was around during political turmoil, so you can you can see uh, political turmoil is putting it is putting the Holocaust very lightly. Um, I mean, you but, caught the tail end of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or he, he it, it, the Holocaust caught the tail end of his life, like the last four years. <laughs> yeah, but he, I mean it. It's kind of interesting because his motto, like during, I think World War One and World War Two, was to try and tell like all of the scientists, just like just keep working, like we just stay focused on what we do because we're doing important work. And mm -hmm. um, it is it is interesting to then see like, oh, that didn't really work out for him too well. Like the other scientists kind of got plucked off by the nazi regime right. but anyways but him and einstein yeah, didn't of... <laughs> no i mean <laughs> he got what like forced out of his position kind of yeah um and then the nazis just took over i don't know i for i didn't do a ton on his biography of that time period just because it's um the I mean, he was like nine. He was like almost ninety years old, or right, eighty-five. Right, right. He was pretty old at that at the time. So I'm not sure yeah. how much everyone was going to him for his like, uh, you know, wise wisest man on the top of the mountain type of uh, intellectual scientific needs anymore. Because yeah. one, because once he like the the way I always think about him is that he's the guy who starts act, he accidentally starts the quantum mechanics debate and because he was really into einstein's initial like relativity ideas he was the one who um brought this young kid who just worked in a patent office around and got him into like the same university circuits and introduced einstein to the same professors he's he's like kind of the uh He's the guy who discovered Einstein in, in, in a lot of ways. Like, he's the one who mainstreamed Einstein and got other people to listen to his ideas. And um, even though, like, it, 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 the other funny part of this is, like, just the, the story of science where science, uh, 
classical physics was such the way that everyone thought that even when Max Planck makes his discoveries um, to try to solve the ultraviolet problem, uh, like he doesn't even want to believe that it's possible. Like he's like, oh yeah, well some some smarter person is going to come along after me and like show how this is all just ridiculous and I was just doing like a thought experiment. You know, there's no way this is actually reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I found it so interesting that he was like people revered him because his um, demeanor and personality and everything was such that he was an extreme like conservative as far as um like politics and as far as uh science goes but he would follow the truth still like yeah, yeah. if something mathematically worked out then he's like okay then i'm going to keep going with this even though he's had an aversion to it the whole time <laughs> right cuz like you just the the process is the process so the the data is going to be the data and you go where that leads you, whether or not that confirms all of your priors and all of the prior classical physicists that had described the way that light works in waves going back to like Newton, uh, 150 years before him. Like that's the, you know, like he's, he's thinking about things because Thomas Edison debatedly comes up with a light bulb and it gets over to Germany and Germany's like, yeah, Americans might have come up with this, but <laughs> you know, we're our German ingenuity. We can figure out how to really make this thing work on a large scale and we can use light bulbs throughout the whole city. It's not just like this uh thing only rich people have in the center of their their uh their dining room or whatever. They where they invite people over for parties to show off their light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that would <laughs> imagine just how hot those bulbs were too. Oh my that god! Would... I mean, well, because that's what's what the uh, the Germany, you know, petitioned him to do was to figure out what is the most efficient way to create a light bulb that we put the just the right amount of electricity to it, so it gets just the right amount of heat, so that it gives off the most visible light. Because the idea was if you put too much energy into a light bulb, it would only, it would like shoot up past the visible spectrum of light and only give off like ultraviolet radiation, basically making the light bulb invisible. Like this, the idea back then was, um, it was like a logarithmic scale of energy to light output. So like, uh, low energy light would be red. And then if you just cranked up that energy as high as you could go, then you eventually get to the full ultraviolet spectrum. So basically the theory was like if you had a, uh, a, a steel boat, right, you know, and it's sitting, on, it's sitting on the ocean. If you wanted to make that invisible to the enemy, if you could figure out a way to superheat the steel structure of the boat up beyond the visible spectrum of light, you could get enough energy onto that it would heat up so much that instead of like glowing yellow and white it would eventually glow ultraviolet which means that you couldn't see it it would render it invisible it was it's the first idea of a cleon like cloaking device or whatever was like if we could just get stuff hot enough it just disappears <laughs> <laughs> 
Did did they uh, at all consider that there needed to be people inside of the boat? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, th- this is just the uh, th- this is me taking my. Uh, obviously, we have to militarize these ideas, right? <laughs> we have to... Well, I, okay. I, I didn't <laughs> like, realize they had. Yeah. But yeah, the idea in the in the laboratory was taking different pieces of steel and trying to superheat them to the point where they would become invisible because they would only be emitting ultraviolet radiation because mm-hmm. if you only think that light works as a wave then you know low frequency r- waves are like low light low energy and then high frequency waves are like really bright ultraviolet light high energy and it's just this one scale that goes one direction but the problem with that is that Basically, in order to ever create ultraviolet light, if you're using that mathematics and that idea of classical physics, you have to give infinite energy in order to get the tightest wavelength of spectrum of the spectrum to be emitted. And you can't give something infinite energy. And yet we know that the ultraviolet wavelengths exist. Um, And then you have like the problems of well, we're looking at the sun, and we know the sun's really freaking hot, but that just looks yellow. So why doesn't that look ultraviolet? Why why do we see the sun at all? Shouldn't it be, like, invisible, only emitting these ultraviolet beams? And so it was a huge problem for a while, especially once uh, and uh, it became thrust into reality to be something we have to figure out once electric light bulbs became a thing that needed to be used by all of society was we finally we're going to have to really get to the bottom of this problem because if we want to make light bulbs that don't like blow up people's houses because they're so hot because we're trying to get all this light out of them and how much energy do we send to all the little uh the outlets everywhere so that they give off enough energy so you're not just getting these really low red lights everywhere in your house that you can't see anything um that, that was the big concern of, like, how could we actually make this useful? So it has, like, a practical application that leads to the discovery of quantum mechanics. Yeah, I think I hadn't realized it uh, before researching him, but Max Planck is at the, really at, like, the turning point of science. And I don't know, I've, I'd never paid attention to it too much just because, his constant comes up, but it's not like they really talk about his role and everything. But he's like studying him. You can see how science builds upon itself. Yeah. Like it's very, very clear that he was not, you know, like, of course, he discovered Einstein and Einstein was, you know, I, I found it interesting. I watched like some clips from that Nat Geo like genius yeah um, yeah yeah where the, where they show. do like the reenactments or whatever with the actors yeah and you know einstein as they described in the show they're like he's answering questions nobody's even asking whereas plonk and everyone that came before him and a lot of people that came after him they're all building on each other and it's very clear to see how you get from you know point a to point b and how that then further advances science and how you can then understand like all of the Planck um like the Planck constant and then the all of the measurements and everything that can be derived from that has you know you would think not a very useful um 
like not practical usage, but it is it comes from practicality. So right. it's one of those things where you you can feel like space exploration is not SG. It is like a a progression of these things and you know studying stars far out in the universe has a practical application and we can understand those things it's not just cool to do or to think about yeah and it's it's another example of uh the sort of false binary that society has always told us like exists like you're an introvert or you're an extrovert or you're right-brained or you're left-brained or uh you're a creative or you're a technician like the these types of real binary types of evaluations of people um max is a is another scientist who is not just some uh math nerd you know who who is emotionless and only cares about numbers or something like that like if he hadn't like gotten into really wanting to understand classical physics, like he would have been a a composer. Like he w- he was a big time musician, um, wrote lots of pieces, played multiple instruments, uh, and I think it just shows that, especially in the fields of like quantum mechanics um, and astrophysics and cosmology, you have a lot of uh, sort of cross-pollinations of personality types in those fields even today where like you know guys are in bands and guys write screenplays and they're not uh uh, different different uh scientists write like fiction fiction type books and things like that not just wrote uh sort of technical papers um because i think in order to really be able to understand some of these things you have to have that kind of capacity for uh letting your mind wonder for the for the thought experiment that is just completely based in your imagination um you i don't think that it's just having some sort of technical acumen is what uh continues to push science push the boulder of science up the hill and it requires a lot of creativity and modeling things in your head and trying to think of things in a non-intuitive way because um, otherwise you never like do the experiment you know yeah uh, I found it interesting his early on like work too was in thermodynamics mm-hmm. and he worked under uh, what's his name Kirchhoff that that guy was like working on optics and solving the wave equation that was for actual waves like the not not the wave equation of like quantum mechanics but the wave equation of like mechanical waves and electromagnetic waves Mm -hmm. um and how those relate as far as like acoustics electromagnetism fluid dynamics stuff like that and Planck also worked on like dilute solutions that had non-volatile solutes uh, dissolved in them. And if you just imagine like now, you know, you're making spaghetti and you want it to be, you know, it's kind of for flavor, but you want the water to be extra hot. So you know to like put salt in it. Mm -hmm. This is back then when they were like, why does salt make the boiling temperature go up (laughs) or lower the freezing point? Um, so it's kind of 
interesting that the the guy who's like working on you know potentially has some of the provided answers at least for um someone in the future like our future to finally connect general relativity with quantum mechanics was working on like you know putting salt into water and what does that do to the osmotic pressure <laughs> yeah yeah well and even even when you're we're talking about like his discovery um with the Planck constant uh that's like a hundred years ago it's not that long right. ago um and the like his nobel prize is uh what 1918 for it and then Einstein gets uh, yeah. Einstein gets the one for solving the ultraviolet problem in uh, 1921. Yeah, everyone always thinks that Einstein gets his Nobel Prize for relativity, but he doesn't get a Nobel Prize for that. It's for solving the ultraviolet problem with and the introduction of quantum mechanics. Politics. Can you win <laughs> multiple Nobel Prizes? I don't know. Probably. I, mean, I would imagine. I would, I would think so. Especially I mean, I if you were like on multiple scientific teams, you know, or, or nowadays how they issue them to teams yeah, yeah, and yeah. not just individuals. I Have you heard of um, ignoble prizes? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so ignoble is like, it's like an organization that gives out prizes for like stupid science stuff <laughs> like like actual research but it's all like stupid stuff like um you know what would be the body mechanics a frog would need to walk on its hind legs only or something like that <laughs> i recommend looking some of those up because it's like like it's like doing the math equations to figure out how what is the fastest way to put on a pair of pants or yeah, something. And you like, still you still have to get published and pay like all those right, dues right, to right. get your paper put in everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I recommend looking those up. It's kinda it's they're better than like the, you know. Do you remember this was kind of early internet, I suppose, but like the Darwin Awards? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it's in a similar vein, I guess, but people aren't dying. <laughs> yeah, not yeah, not not people just failing at a stupid human trick, right? Um, so I think the like the discovery of his constant is interesting in the ultraviolet problem, and essentially the you know I I can't verbalize these things great which is perfect for a podcast yep but there was just a relationship that he wanted to figure out between energy and the frequency of radiation which makes enough sense to us now but if you imagine like you're describing they're trying to figure out what is the relationship to these things and essentially his discovery was coming up with another number that is pi like another type of constant to yeah. use um and so i think that that's that's the key takeaway from like what is his constant or what does it mean or whatever it's just another number that then ratio wise makes sense for comparing energy to wavelength and then you can start to see from all of the times we've spoken about quantum mechanics, 
okay, quantum mechanics is dealing with waves and it's dealing with these like energized particle wave things. So there must be a relationship there. Like you can then take the Terrence Howard route and be like, the whole world is waves. It's all energy. (laughs) Precisely from this discovery. (laughs) Well, yeah. And this is the, this ushers in what becomes the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Um, And so I guess we can just break it down a little bit. So the, after Newton, you know, does the prism, refracts the light oh look we can see the full spectrum of light and we understand now that light is a wave um he does the shadow experiment where you know he shows that the edges of shadows are inherently fuzzy you can never have like a perfect edge of a shadow a sharp edged shadow because the wave of the one that's trying to go around like the edge of your hand as your hand is casting a shadow on the wall that one has to get kind of bent around the the wave that goes right past the edge so that causes kind of like a smudge so if you ever look real close at your shadow the edges all around are a little smudgy um and so you know through experimentation of different you know distances and different light sources and stuff they 150 years basically said it's, oh, it can only be a wave. It works just like water. The way that, uh, you know, a wave of water gets uh, deflected around the bow of a ship is the same thing that's happening when the light wave hits your hand and then casts a shadow on the wall. And the fuzziness is the same thing as when you see that frothy white water, you know, rush up against the sides of the ship. It's the same, same concept, fluid dynamics. This is the way we're going to think of light. It's all perfect, that all the math works perfect until you get light bulbs. Um, and until you get, you know, uh, <clears throat> Michael Faraday, who comes up with, you know, talks about electromagnetism, comes up with dynamos, and then you can have, like, these experiments inside of laboratories and on bicycles and all these things where you attach a dynamo, you wind that dynamo up, and you send different, you, you know, you adjust the amount of electrical charge that you're sending to the light bulb. And then as you wind that dynamo faster, send more electricity, you can see the light bulb change from, you know, red to amber to orange to yellow to white. And uh, you can you can wind it really fast, as fast as you can. But eventually it gets only to like yellow white and only just bright. That color just gets brighter, but the color doesn't change anymore. And so that starts the problem with trying to create the ultraviolet light based upon a wave type of logarithmic scale. Um, And no one can really figure out why this is, especially after they do a secondary experiment with electricity, um, where they take a uh, an electrically charged uh, or to an electrically charged current through a wire that gets sent down to a piece of gold leaf so it's just like you know the very gold tin foil type of stuff that you wrap a candy bar in but just the gold leaf aspect not the tin foil aspect of it and it's it's hanging and when you send the electrical charge through it the gold leaf repels itself so it splits in two like at a 90 degree angle uh, or a 45 degree angle um, and when you shine light on that gold leaf that is being separated by the polarity the light if it is ultraviolet will force those two 
uh, halves of the gold leaf to squeeze back together and overcome the repelling charge that is going through the wire. If you just shine, shine regular low wavelength light, like red light or even visible light, it does not do this. Um, even if you crank the intensity up of the red light to as bright as it possibly can go. So you're sending tons of energy into the red light to make it as bright as possible. It will not collapse the gold leaf together to make it touch anymore. Um, you can send a very low energy ultraviolet light and it will collapse. So they knew something else was going on besides just this wave function there because something had to be forcing that gold leaf together at very low energy with ultraviolet light that wasn't happening when you had high energy red light. Um, so think of it like, um, the, the best example I saw was from Jim A. Khalili, who is a British physicist. He does a lot of stuff. I'm sure if you listen to science podcasts, you've heard of him before. Um, but he did an example of where he had a bunch of uh, cans set up like at a like in a pyramid, you know, like when you go to the fair and you're going to knock down the pyramid of cans with a ball. Um, so he did the example of if you were using red light, if it wasn't waves, if it was packets. So if you take red balls that are like the density of a ping pong ball and you can throw hundreds of them at once, thousands of them at once at the pyramid of cans, and they will not knock the cans down. You could put them in a, you could put them in a bazooka and fire them thousands at a time, and they will not knock the cans down because they're, they don't have enough mass. There's not enough to them to actually knock them down, even if you turn the intensity up super high. Um, however, if you switch to like some very dense balls like uh, golf balls or small lead balls and you only throw one of them, that'll knock the whole pyramid of cans down. So basically that's the, the idea from that sort of analogy is that light is in packets. It's quantized. It's not just a continuous wave. Um, and the red light that's at the low end of the visual spectrum those packets don't contain anything. They're very, they're, they, they almost, they will not squeeze the gold leaf together because they're like ping pong balls to the, to the uh, stack of cans. However, ultraviolet light, even when at low energies, every packet of ultraviolet light is still a packet of ultraviolet light. It contains that full condensed wave inside of that packet. So it's a much it's like the golf ball. It's like the little lead ball when you throw it at the cans. And so all you need is one, and it's enough to collapse the gold leaf in the gold leaf experiment. So that's how they knew um, that, one, it was not just this continuous logarithmic wave and that uh, ultraviolet had a lot more to it than even the most intense vis visible spectrum of light. So it had to be quantized. It was in packets, little pieces of information. And that's where we got Einstein calling those things quanta. And the, like, understanding that it is quantized, like, I don't know, it's, it's so revolutionary just because 
like you can then do stuff with light in a way that you wouldn't ever imagine doing it like you know all of the other experiments that we talk about in um quantum mechanics like the double slit experiment and stuff or the photoelectric effect um those are things that were able to be thought about because they then understood it was a packet of energy it was like a you know it was quantized there was an amount of it it was not just Mm -hmm. like it's not i don't know i'm trying to describe it to like you know water in a glass but i guess that's an amount you would say a lot of water that's an amount right right (laughs) and it's and it's not like and it's not a uh like a thing where it's like different calibers of bullets uh, in a gun or something like that. Th- think of it like like the sun. Think of the sun like a giant machine gun that can shoot a bunch of photons at the at planet Earth, right? And that warms it up and gives us visible light. Well, the, the sun's machine gun is this very special kind of machine gun that can shoot every caliber of bullet that's ever been made. And it wants to shoot all of them, but the disperse the disperse in order to be shot, each bullet has a very specific um, caliber that it says like in order to be shot, I'm I have to be this size, otherwise I will not get shot. Um, so like the ultraviolet bullets have a very specific requirement that say we have to be this size to be shot. We can be shot in sequence with a bunch of other smaller bullets, and that's fine. But in order to do that, there's only going to be a few of us in the sequence, and most of the other bullets are going to be much smaller bullets coming from the sun. So we are getting the big caliber ultraviolet bullets from the sun, but just because the sun is a big energy machine doesn't mean that it's reached the energy point where it only shoots the big ultraviolet bullets. It shoots all the bullets, but those are distributed based upon the type, the energy that it releases, and just depending on the amount of energy packed inside of each one of those little bullets tells you what kind of bullet it is that the sun fired at you. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know why I find it so cool, but just the, the concept of quantized light or quantized anything is fascinating that there's it's not a totally fluid spectrum of energy Mm -mm. like once you get to this point it is very small the differences are very small but there are units in between each level of energy that you cannot go up a half unit between these energies and we've spoken about this because of like the way that uh particles like or electrons, you know, you yeah. have the valence levels. How electrons go around the nucleus energy. is totally dependent upon them jumping up that level of energy or losing a level of energy, but they can't get in between those levels of energy. They either have to, they either have to give off a, uh, give off a, a particle and then they lose it, or they gain one and they go up to the next level. But there's no in between stage. Which is, I mean, it's just so. <laughs> That's it's not intuitive because you see these things on a very smooth scale, but it starts to make the world feel very strange. Like, you know, you you start to think about it and you're like at small scales, then that means that the universe is like pixely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It you but you can you can is. just keep going enhance 
enhance, <laughs> enhance, and eventually you just enhance, and it's like just four little you know blocks that are too impossible to see because they're blurry. It doesn't enhance anymore. There is there is a limit to how far you can zoom in. Yeah, um, I think that's like kind of the the interesting part of it is that from this discovery too they have found that um like the universe is if you start at one meter which for oh yeah um, let's talk about the scale stuff because this blows my mind (laughs) for the american audience one meter is a a little bit bigger than a yard yeah almost Um, a yard almost a yard a little bit smaller than a yard thank you for the correction (laughs) see i um I'm a metric guy yeah. myself. Um, so if you start at a meter, the universe is, you can go smaller in scale than you can go bigger in scale. Yeah. Like the, the, we, the yeah, we, we, which, we exist above the halfway point of the scale line as far as size of things in the universe. <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> we are closer in size to as large as the universe possibly is than we are to as small as the universe possibly is. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> high resolution universe here. Um, I think, what was the, oh, no, I don't want to bookmark this. I want to control F that. And then, uh, oh, man, what did I cubic okay yeah there are (laughs) so the way that like the his Planck constant works out and the constant is you know one of the four fundamental constants of the universe Mm -hmm. um that's the other constants being like the speed of light and the gravitational constant g um and boltzmann constant I had a question for you on this one real quick. Is he the guy, the Boltzmann brain yeah. or whatever? That Okay, that we could just be a brain floating in space? Yeah, the thought experiment of if consciousness is the whole thing, then why, if it's only, and if consciousness is just a reflection of the electrical patterns in a brain, then there could possibly be a universe that is just a brain floating in space imagining all of this existence. Okay. Um... So again, it's very interesting that you have all these characters together. Uh, and then you have uh, Planck's constant, which is a very small number. And I never understand why the units are they the way that they are, but it just go with us. It works out. Um, so from that Planck constant, uh, you it then arose that... Using the Planck units, um, you can rewrite all of the equations of physics so that the speed of light equals the gravitational constant equals Planck's constant equals Boltzmann's constant equals one. So you can just rearrange mathematical trickery in a way that is valid and all of those then equal each other, which means... Through this discovery, you can one, and this was one of uh, Planck's like driving, um, like reasons he wanted to work on this stuff. One, you can have constants that would exist 
in knowledge bases for every human outside of the earth potentially extraterrestrials they would yeah. understand this <laughs> yeah this is like understanding angular momentum or uh the understanding just the fun fundamental laws of physics that you could use as a universal language to communicate with any intelligent species because they would have have had to have discovered these same same laws of physics too in order to be able to communicate yeah it's it's crazy cool that you can then you know work on that scale and that level but the things that you can derive from it with just moving around those constants and stuff is you can then get a Planck length mass time energy and temperature mm -hmm. which means it is it is the smallest amount of like energy or the smallest amount of length or the smallest amount of mass which the you know, small or like the smallest measurable or the smallest measurable yeah yeah or as far as measurement is concerned um and this goes to the heisenberg uncertainty principle because we've talked about how we can know like the spin of an object but we can't know the location of it you can only know like one of three things of any locality of any particle and he Planck kind of stumbled upon this in trying to dissect reality down to its smallest part um because his idea his original thought experiment was oh well i'll come up with this Planck's constant and eventually that will will do enough math and that number will equal zero because the idea of the time was well if you take if you if you take like any number and you divide that number in half you can keep dividing that number in half for infinity like no matter how big of the number is you start with or how small the number is you start with with the concept of just mathematics you can continue dividing that number for infinity However, that's not true for reality. You can't just, at some point, if you're cutting an earthworm in half, like, there's going to not be enough earthworm left as you keep cutting it in half to cut it in half again. So what is the smallest length of an earthworm that you can cut in half is kind of the experiment that he's trying to figure out. And what happens is when you get to that, the small scale where he's at, <clears throat> whatever, uh, 15 times 10 to the minus 34, right? <laughs> Ye... Which, the constant? Yeah, the constant. I can't, I can't remember it off the top of my head how many zeros. It's incredibly small. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> incredibly it's... small. Um, uh, yeah. But when you, when you get down to that level, you have such that if you try to localize something at that size, that's smaller than a Planck unit, you would have to either, in order to find that um, as much information as you can about its locality, you would have to give away to uncertainty how much energy it has and how much momentum it has. So then if you decided, well, I wanted to find out what the energy is at the smallest scale, then you would no longer have the locality or the momentum anymore because at that size anything smaller than a Planck basically has the ability at its energy to measure itself 
that it will collapse into its own black hole and be its the size of the event horizon of that black hole is exactly the Planck length. So even if you wanted to measure something, even if you could imagine a uh, an apparatus that can measure something smaller than the Planck length, you would never be able to actually see it because anything that would be smaller than that at any energy level would be a black hole. So that is the limit to which you can dissect something without making it nothing. <laughs> yeah, which is then means that everything is really chunky <laughs> at that level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, real. It gets really grainy. Yeah, and I misspoke. I said like it's the smallest energy. It The energy and temperature, interestingly enough, are the highest energy or the highest mm. temperature like the most which yeah, is cuz in order to locate in order to give it enough energy to localize it at that small of a scale all of a sudden once you get to the point where you're almost about to do it then it starts to scatter into heisenberg uncertainty and the uh the particle the planck size particle you're trying to measure becomes located all over the place and there's two of it flashing at once and you n no longer know where it exists because the energies are too high and then it turns into a black yeah. hole the the temperature is interesting because it it like they all play off of each other but the wavelength of a light particle that you would be heating up from thermal radiation at this Planck temperature, the wavelength would be one Planck length. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is like the most hot that you can possibly get. And then at that point, as you're describing, but also the fundamental forces of the universe would likely be merging where yeah, yeah. like electromagnetism and gravity would have no distinguishable difference. Right. And and that's sort of where the edge is right now of the next discovery. And maybe in five days when they crank back CERN, crank CERN back up, we'll be closer to figuring it out. But like this is where we in order to find out the next step, you got it. We have to have some sort of true theory that encapsulates quantum gravity. Um, and until we get that, we can't really know what happens beyond this level like right now we're at that's the limit of the possibility of knowing right now the Planck length yeah and so I think the the thing that I got distracted from but <clears throat> so if you have a Planck length so that's one length then you can you know cube it and then you have a Planck volume mm -hmm. which is the smallest amount of you know space or whatever any kind of matter I suppose but at that point you really don't call it matt i guess you would say strings or whatever yeah yeah the, um, or, yeah because the plunk length is like the diameter of this or the length of the smallest string and string theory or something like that yeah yeah and it, there are more plunk volumes so cubic plunk lengths there are more of those in one cubic meter than there are cubic meters in the known universe <laughs> <laughs> Which just blows my mind that, again, as we're saying, you know, just think about it. You can go smaller more than you can go bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, like, what was the I've other one? Like uh, the 120,000 seat stadium in Michigan. Like if that was the size of an atom, the Planck scale would be the size of a small marble on the 50 yard line. Something like that. Yeah. It was, well, I think one of them was, 
a um oh what was it these oh did i really delete oh, dang it i'm searching control z notes. undelete <laughs> Um, the, if an atom was the size of the earth, a Planck length would be the size of an atom. Oh yeah. That's um, what it was. That's what or it was. closer to the size of a proton. I think they also, there was one video where they mentioned the stadium or whatever, like the largest football stadium, <clears throat> but the, to imagine that the, that's the scale that you're talking about is Again, you know, I've been going on for like 10 minutes about it. It's just mind-blowing. But it's really cool because then you can, you know, you derive Planck time from that, which means time is not continuous. Time, there is a unit of time. It is actually like... Ticking. A movie. (laughs) Yeah, moving at a very high speed. Um and I mean, Planck time is fascinating because it has like 43 zeros, at least 44, like there's different kind of ways that they look at the constants. And it's the time it takes light to travel one Planck length. So again, you can see how it's related. <laughs> C, yeah. C divided by Planck length. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I mean, the Planck time is what the gravitational the square root of the gravitational constant times the Planck constant over the speed of light to the fifth power (laughs) which makes a whole lot of sense to me um but the size well you're just getting to the basic algebra where you can uh then reduce the equation down to by eliminating everything on both sides of the equal sign (laughs) right 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 um and the the like that's the time it takes a light particle to travel one Planck length, which is around a hundredth of a millionth of a trillionth of the diameter of a proton. <laughs> so, but that means that's the size of it, right? Yeah. That is the amount of time that passes. There is an actual ticking of the clock of the entire universe and you cannot go one half Planck time. Right. And the interesting thing about that because it is a constant means that all those the it works ratio wise so the length of it, it's not just uh these are the the pixels of the universe it's every fundamental foundational building block of everything is this size like that's the smallest size that it can be so if you were you know to think of to, to think to think of uh, a waterfall uh, made up of just the droplets of water type of thing, but also the time yeah. that it takes for the water to fall from the top of the waterfall for, to the bottom is also measured in the same droplets of water. It's not, it's, and this is where you have to really start to think about relativity and space-time being one fabric. That unit is is a multi-dimensional unit. It is not just the size of the two-dimensional square that makes the picture of the universe. It is all four dimensions that are these tiny units, which is just another mindfuck, another step of a mindfuck beyond just trying to put like the the picture of the universe together. You have to think about it in all in all four ways. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it's it is complicated to think of space time as a concept and then imagining that at that scale it is the same thing. Like obviously, but it's it's wild. And I find it, you know, I'm probably just going to read here so that I don't screw it up, but it's interesting that it as I was saying can start to tie these things together potentially in the future. They still don't have you know, that um, quantum gravity theory, but there's potential that uh, Planck mass can um, tie those things together because, so for any given mass, Einstein's theory of gravity, general relativity, gives a characteristic link scale called the Schwarzschild radius. Uh, but quantum theory has And we has know Schwarzschild from last week or two weeks ago. You know, the black hole uh, guy who was... And World yeah, War yeah. One shooting artillery. Yes, the very strange hobby to take your mind off of being <laughs> shelled. Um, so quantum theory has its own length scale for that mass, which is termed the Compton wavelength. Um, and so there's they're wondering, is there any mass for which the Schwarzschild radius is exactly equal to the Compton wavelength? And that mass is the Planck mass. Mm -hmm. So you have these things that do actually potentially tie it together. Um, the general relativity theory and the quantum, you know, wavelengths and everything like that. Like those things do start to work together. Um, and they're not sure if it's just like a coincidence, which I can't imagine it is, <laughs> considering how precise those numbers are. Um, but it appears that through that understanding, they would soon be, hopefully soon, be able to tie those together. I don't know. I don't know how to describe like what the, obviously, because they haven't described it, what a quantum gravity theory would be. But it's wild that, from 1900 like looking at light bulbs and trying to solve that problem can then tie together like these fundamental understandings of the universe yeah well like quantum gravity i that's kind of at cern they're looking for a graviton which would be like maybe it's a particle that's smaller than all the other particles we found but somehow that particle attaches to other particles and that's what gives them gravitational attraction so maybe there is this thing that's spinning around a nucleus other than just protons and electrons and it's this graviton thing and we just haven't found it yet um but it's so small that we need a super high power collider in order to get one to capture one um, then you have like string theory, which tries to describe it. And then like the, uh, advance on string theory, I think loop theory, which tries to describe the, the quantum nature of the universe is the, basically the, those, the Planck sizes are the size of these little loops and some property, some emergent property of the loops is what, um, initiates the gravitational push and pull reaction on things uh but again all of these are just like you know thought experiments trying to think of a way that you can make 
how, how do you make gravity sticky to stuff when it doesn't have any mass and that's such a small scale? How, how do, yeah. But then it still has to somehow come together and get sticky. So how does it get sticky? Like, does it go through like this weird invisible gravity sticky glue wall and all of a sudden it has like gravity or does it like get sprayed with like a special gravity particle at some point? Like that's the, that's the big question is where, where does that part happen? Yeah. And the, I mean, again, just tying all of them together, knowing that like the, this gravity thing that would potentially have an effect only works at the, at the Planck scale as far as a Planck length means that's the smallest length that gravity would have an effect. Yeah. So smaller than that, which you can't do, it would not have an effect. So then are you looking for an extra dimensional thing that adds this gravity, um, which is totally likely. I've got no idea. Well, that And that's the biggest, that's sort of the big fear of physics, uh, of scientists and physicists is that, there is another thing that might be a dimensionality issue and we do not have the ability to interact with whatever that thing is. And that is the thing that is giving the, these other sort of emergent properties that we can't figure out. And because of how we interact with reality, we might not actually be able to pierce that veil and find out what it is. Um, that that's sort of the nightmare. The night the nightmare is that it's some sort of hidden hidden variable that we can't figure out. That's what's that's yeah. that and that's one of the things that plagued Einstein, which is why he wasn't even down with like quantum mechanics for a lot of it because he thought, uh, this this makes things too spooky for me, and then I got to start thinking about. <laughs> all these other things that seem to break down reality and I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah, it seriously screws up your like classical physics approach to anything because it it just no longer works. It doesn't like I'm not good at math, but I can understand when they say the math no longer works, I'll just tell them okay. <laughs> um but I don't know. I I found it very interesting to like dive into all of these and see how like all of this stuff relates to each other these fundamental answers to the universe could potentially relate to you know trying to understand black holes and light bulbs and how light even works yeah and i love that it's um i love that it's the it's just a great it's a great science story like this whole thing is just a great science story that Science isn't just people making random guesses and then they were because they were like a part of the high austerity class or whatever of the society. Everyone's just like, oh, yeah, I guess he's right. <laughs> we won't test right. that. No, no. The whole thing is just a bunch of people testing a bunch of stuff and being like, OK, we've all we've learned this. And now when I try to do it in the lab, I can't get that thing to happen one time with with light waves like I've done a hundred experiments and everything that we know about light, now that I apply it to electrified light, I can't recreate any of those things in the laboratory. So something else must be going on. I'm not just, I'm going to figure out what that is. I'm not just going to resign myself and be like, oh, these experiments are stupid. Newton was right all along. 
like the the whole point is the is the uh churn just the constant churn like that's the whole idea behind the whole thing um which i don't think is really representative in kind of any other academic field or uh or political field or anything like that like the almost the uh the idea of churn and everything else is taboo you know like uh we must we must maintain status quo we must maintain tradition we must maintain you know all of these things because that's that defines who we are as as humans like all of the all of this past and everything so we must uphold it whereas science kind of goes the exact opposite thinking that the only thing that defines us as human is is being a vessel for the universe to know itself and if we're not constantly trying to improve on that then the universe is not never can understand what it is yeah well said um so take that ijb (laughs) in what capacity it's stupid anti-science boys thinking it's all just a bunch of people guessing like they don't know anything about dinosaurs some guy just dug up one little pinky toe and said this is a t-rex yeah did you so you finally listened to that episode yeah yeah i did (laughs) and the punching your and the next one that had me punching my dashboard really hard in the car that i don't drive was um when they when tc was like i don't know i think china might have talked to aliens <laughs> I mean, yeah, they have big the biggest radio telescope in the world, and I was like, okay, they have a big radio telescope, but it's nothing compared to the Event Horizons Telescope, which is a complete network of radio telescopes. It's the size of the planet Earth. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's fun, you know, being on this this network. <laughs> I, I'm just glad we can provide some counterpoints. <clears throat> yeah yeah just uh fostering debate just point here point counterpoint on the blood feed yeah right the true american ideal of uh dialectical reasoning all right ma'am i've i did find it funny um hegel was mentioned in someone's quote oh yeah um yeah it was when so like he like for several years after Planck made his his constant and he, you know, followed the truth or whatever, um, a ton of physicists still refused to accept it and they would put Planck's constant to zero in order to align their math with classical physics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm gonna force Planck you to be a boy. It, None of my son's gonna be a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Planck uh, described their thinking of, um, I'm unable to understand their stubbornness. He is an example of a theoretician uh, as should never be existing, the same as Hegel was for philosophy. So much (laughs) the worse for the facts if they don't fit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, You know, we talked about Hegel before, how he, he... His his specific way of, of wording things and writing them made it such that, like, anybody could kind of say he was on my side. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also found it interesting that um, Max Planck, one of his sons, was uh, involved in the Operation Valkyrie 
um, assassination attempt against Hitler where they drafted like a new constitution and he was mm-hmm. caught and executed. Um, that's it's that's Tom, pretty wild. It's where Tom Cruise had a fake butt. <laughs> yeah, it was... <laughs> I mean, does, I thought he's always had that. But that was where it was discovered, his his fake butt that he wore in his Valkyrie costume when he was doing stunts. He had a big fake butt. <laughs> I mean, an interesting movie. <laughs> he just wanted to wear an eye patch. He was like, give me a story that's got me in an eye patch. I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really do the Mission Impossible I think bouldering would be quite difficult with one eye. <laughs> just your depth perception would be off just a little bit too much. You might miss a handhold. Yeah. I bet that would have really plussed up Top Gun, though. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm the only only pilot <laughs> like, that can look, fly he this was well. So, he was so good. He was so good that even if he's just half as good with one eye, he's still better than all of you. <laughs> yeah. It's he's really throwing it in the face of that kid in um, Little Miss Sunshine, isn't he? Yep, just because he's colorblind, man. That just thinking about that scene still makes me cry. That's so sad. <laughs> Poor Paul Dano. Well, he wanted to be in the military, so let's not look. When we were all teenage kids, we all wanted to be fighter pilots. Don't you tell me you never wanted to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> I certainly did not, um, but. How? That's because How could you never want to be a fighter pilot? Or did your parents just tell you from a young age, you'll never do it, Eric. Don't well, even dream. You know, being raised in a, a Marine household, any other branch of the military oh, yeah. is just, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they maybe you could have talked them into letting you fly some A-10s and go and mow down some tanks. <laughs> yeah, I would have flown the, uh, what's the one that like the propellers, like it's the helicopter oh, the plane? Yeah, that always flips over and kills the pilots. <laughs> it's a great I idea. It was, it was <laughs> F-35 before the F-35. We'll make this work. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. Don't they... They did have, like, some jets that do do the vertical takeoff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. F-22 or F-35 has that or had, like, a version of that where it would turn down the thruster in the center and, like, do a vertical takeoff like a Harrier. Yeah, I, I saw one of those at, like, an air show one time. It was very strange because it came flying in and then came to a stop and then started going backwards. Yeah, the Harriers um, Harriers are awesome. Made famous in the movie True Lies starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh okay. I'll believe it's the you. plane it's the plane he steals to save his daughter. True Lies, that was an eighties movie? Nineties. Ninety five? Whoa, yeah, ninety four. Yeah. You, okay, you weren't I've seen even this. alive yet. I was alive, sir. You're like, you're still wearing diapers. This is the Kurt Cobain year? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's... I'm sorry, I can't be more fun in the group chat. I'm always asking questions. <laughs> well, you got you got a lot of, lot of early 90s history you should read up on. Just wait till you find <laughs> out about the L.A. riots during the Rodney King trial. <laughs> All right. Sounds fun. It's going to be a doozy. You're going to be like, wow, and I live here? I didn't even know this happened. (laughs) I drive through this part of town all the time. (laughs) All right, man. Good job on on the tiniest. Okay. Talk to you tiny later. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.